0: Hey, what's happening everybody? This is Brain Drain and I'm your host, Connor McCann. As of the release of this episode, it's been two weeks since the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul, fell to the new rulers of the country, the Taliban, for the second time in the group's history. It's also just been days since the Kabul airport was bombed. This fall of Kabul was precipitated in the weeks prior by a lightning offensive that seized most of the country's provincial capitals an offensive that was reported on moderately in the United States. What happened after hasn't stopped being reported on since. The fall of Kabul was a shock to many, especially given the predictions of our own professional class of politicians and media personalities, which gave timelines regarding Kabul's fall ranging from the end of the year to one to three months. Many people have been asking, how could this happen? How were they able to accomplish this so fast? Had the Biden administration missed this? And what's going to happen after? These are all valid questions, questions that I will possibly address at a later time with the gift of hindsight. In this episode, we're going to talk about something else an approach the government of Afghanistan took towards their Taliban problem. It's an approach that's used the world over, and possibly shouldn't even be called an approach, but more an attitude. Let me ask you, the listener, a question though. Have you ever gotten into a fight with somebody and then that person came back with a big brother or big cousin or big sister or just somebody bigger than you? But let me ask you a different question. Have you ever gotten into a fight with somebody and instead of them coming back with a big brother, they came back with their little brother instead? Let's get into it. And before we start this episode, I just want to say that this episode isn't necessarily meant to be an in-depth study of the Taliban. It remains to be seen if the experiences of the last 20 years will shape it, just the consciousness of the Taliban and perhaps they won't make some of the mistakes if you even want to call them mistakes. I don't know if you can call things you do on purpose a mistake, but we'll see if the experience of being a rebel group, losing your base operations, having to be on the run, getting shot by drones, if that tempers the experience of the Taliban any. But I will say this episode is more so intended to show the listener what occurred during the occupation of Afghanistan, as well as profile a man that was in the thick of the mix during this time. And as somebody that's a proponent of just more context in general, some more context is needed before we proceed with this story. Afghanistan is a country that straddles South and Central Asia, sandwiched between Iran to the West, Pakistan to the east, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan to the north to northwest, with China and India not far off. Though it is a landlocked country, Afghanistan has long served as a crossroads for ideas and materials, from the Hellenism of Alexander, to the spread of Islam, to the hashish enthusiasts of the hippie trail. The majority of the people in the country are Sunni Muslims, with Pashtuns being the largest ethnic community, followed by Tajiks, Uzbeks, and the Shia Hazara. Pashtuns mostly live in the southern part of the country, but there are communities in the north as well. Pakistan also has a large Pashtun population, located primarily in the northwestern tribal provinces, but many also live in the large cities such as Quetta or Karachi. As we will see in this story, events in one country many times come to affect the other. Though Afghanistan has parts of the country, primarily rural parts of the country, where the attitudes are very religiously conservative. In Kabul, at least, this wasn't always so. And as alluded to, it was an end destination for Western tourists, chasing spiritual enlightenment, free love, drugs, some combination of these, or all of them, when they came to Afghanistan. The country's history is also replete with examples of other visitors being tossed out from ancient times up until modern ones before our very recent exit from the country. The most recent example of this would be the Soviet Union who invaded the country in 1979. The invasion followed a rise of tension, not only between the secular communist government and the religiously conservative populations, but also between factions of the Afghan Communist Party itself. This invasion, in which the 40th Army of the USSR killed Hafizullah Amin, who served as the leader of the country and replaced him with the proxy, and it led to a long, drawn-out, and incredibly violent and costly war that also led to the Soviet Union's defeat and withdrawal from the country. This invasion of 1979, along with the Iranian Revolution and the siege of the Kaaba in Mecca, electrified the Islamic world, calling many to come and fight, and inspiring many who are not practicing Muslims to become so and join the caravan. The war also resulted in up to two million deaths, along with millions displaced within the country, as well as millions displaced outside the country, with the majority going to either Iran or Pakistan. It is in Pakistan that I want to introduce you to a young, poor Pashtun man named Mangal Bagh. He wasn't from Afghanistan, but from the Hyber Agency in what used to be called the Federally Administrated Tribal Areas of Pakistan, and is a member of the Afridi tribe that has long controlled the Hyber Pass. He's not up to much following the Soviet exit. He's certainly not in school, as he's never attended middle or high school. He's 16 at the time, and later on he would find himself in the city of Peshawar, washing buses and working other jobs to support himself and his family. In his youth, he belonged to a leftist Pashtun nationalist political party called the Awami National Party. But his feelings would evolve. The situation in Afghanistan would evolve as well. Following the Soviet exit, the different rebel Mujahideen factions descended on the city of Jalalabad in the eastern Nangahar province. The Mujahideen expected to take the city with ease, then march on the capital of Kabul soon after. They didn't see it as possible for the government, led by President Mohammed Najibullah, to hold out without the reinforcement of Soviet troops. But hold out they did, the Mujahideen were defeated at Jalalabad, and it would be another three years before they would take the capital of Kabul. Once the different factions that stood united against the Soviets and then united against Najibullah took Kabul, they instantly turned on each other in a vicious internal conflict. The main players in this horror show were the Pashtuns Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Abdul Razul Sayyaf, Tajiks Barnauddin Rabani and Ahmad Shah Massoud, and the Uzbek, sometimes communist, sometimes not, Abdul Rashid Dostan. Kabul would soon find itself destroyed after multiple rocket barrages, and atrocities were carried out on the Shia Hazara minority by Sayaf and his troops. Country would descend into chaos, and amidst this chaos, a group presenting themselves as religious students pledged to end it. Well, things started off a little more locally. And perhaps the end goal wasn't so grand in the southern Kandahar Province, in a small border town called Spinvoldo, there was a predatory warlord at work. This warlord was like many in the country, where power was only exercised locally. He had likely taken the top spot in the district, town, or even just a single checkpoint crossing by force or coercion, though he could have also been the last warlord second in command. He had unchallenged, unrivaled power. And was flanked by underlings who made their living from doing his bidding. Most warlords just had rifles, possibly even some pre World War II Enfield rifles, but they had mostly Russian and Chinese AKs, as well as explosives like grenades and RPGs or rocket propelled grenades. Others, like Hekmacher and Massoud, had rocket systems and tanks. He tried to squeeze as much money and property as he could from those who lived in his area. And like many warlords throughout the country, he looked to separate young boys from their parents. This last facet of life was said to especially inspire Mullah Omar, a religious teacher from Kandahar province, to clear the area of the checkpoints and warlords and to reintroduce Islamic law to the country as a whole. At first he only had 50 religious students, or Taliban, following him, but soon he amassed enough to take Spin Boldak, hanging the warlord from a tank turret and rescuing young boys from captivity. Or at least that's the Taliban creation myth, which, like many myths, has elements of the truth to it. Mullah Omar was in fact a Diobandi religious teacher from Kandahar province who now lived in Pakistan. He did in fact have a vision for Afghanistan's future, and he was eager to implement Sharia, or Islamic law in the country. And he did start out with a small group of followers, which quickly morphed into thousands. And he, along with the first generation of Taliban leaders and members, was able to do this because they had the backing of the Pakistani state. And beyond even just having the backing, some even say that the Taliban is a creation of Pakistan. And I have to admit, there is some convincing evidence there. By 1994, the war had been going on for 15 years, and there looked to be no end to the stalemate that enveloped the country. Pakistan. Aside from good old-fashioned human goodwill, it wanted to see its neighbors stabilized for numerous reasons. In fact, Pakistan had been involved with the war since the beginning of the war. And even before the war, two of the major players in the conflict to come, Hekmatyar and Masood, they had been living in exile in Pakistan due to their Islamic militancy. Hekmatyar emerged as the favorite of the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI or Inner Services Intelligence which funneled money to him received from the U.S. and Saudi governments. It wasn't so much Gulbuddin's ruthlessness, but his ineffective attempts at government, as well as his inability to crush his rivals that caused the Pakistani state, as well as the ISI, which had pretty much by this point in history grown powerful enough to become its own state, but it caused them to look elsewhere for another partner. And as stated before, Pakistan had plenty of reasons to do so. This includes a large amount of refugees, the majority of them Pashtun, who had settled in the country during the course of the war. Those tribal areas I discussed earlier, up until a few years ago, they were largely a patchwork of autonomous Pashtun tribal chieftains, self-ruled and unbothered by the government. And with the exception of a clan, tribal, or geographic identity, there was no difference between the Pashtuns on one side of the border and Pashtuns on the other. Both of them practiced Sunni Islam. And both are governed by both Sharia and Pashtun Valley, the Pashtun customary law practiced in the tribal lands for over a thousand years. The Pakistani government has feared Pashtun secession with varying intensity at different times since the creation of the state, but it feared that the influx of Pashtuns could bring about the scenario, make it a reality. It wasn't just about demographics, though. The Pakistani state's worst rival, India, is to its east and they share a very long border. They've also shared a couple of wars over the years, all of which Pakistan has lost. Pakistan also lost what became the country of Bangladesh following a 1971 war with India, which ended with the then East Pakistan gaining its independence. Regardless of how that conflict is viewed or remembered, we can deduce the toll that it took on the collective consciousness of the Pakistani state. And how could it not? They lost half their country. Following this point, Pakistan looked at having and maintaining a friendly government in Kabul as essential, and this position is still the position that Pakistan continues to hold to this day. In the simplest terms that I can put it in, they couldn't expect themselves to be sandwiched in by India on both sides and expect to survive. However, there was a motivation that is perhaps central to most rationales for warfare. There was some money to be made. With the patchwork of petty and major warlords clogging the roadways throughout the country, it was hard to ship anything throughout Afghanistan. In Pakistan, when corrupt elements of the state work together with organized crime who control certain sectors, the resulting union is known as a mafia. And what these mafias seek to do, successfully I might add, is to impose a monopoly on these sectors. So for example, there are construction mafias, There's a land mafia, there's a water mafia, and there's a trucking mafia. This trucking mafia was particularly influential at the time, and they saw opportunities for business in the emerging Central Asian republics that border Afghanistan, as these republics serve as the gateway to Russia. The roadblocks, extortion, kidnapping, and fighting, it made these shipping runs impossible, because they were either too dangerous, or worse, non-profitable if only somebody would do something about him. And, as we have seen, somebody did. By 1996, the fractured and fractious Afghan government had collapsed, with many warlords fleeing the country, and with Ahmad Shah Massoud taking up a defensive position in his native Panjshir Valley. This lightning offensive was aided by an influx of fighters from Pakistan, many from the madrasas, or religious schools of the tribal areas, which locked their doors and sent their students, including many children, to the front to go fight. Many were also refugees returning home, including Mullah Omar. But thousands were members of either the Pakistani military or the ISI, who coordinated their advances and tactics, secured food and supplies, secured weapons, and even embedded with the Taliban. In 1996 in Kandahar, when Mullah Omar was proclaimed Amir al-Mu'minin, or, commander of the faithful of all Muslims, the Pakistani Prime Minister, Benazir Bhutto, she remained mum. But despite this, Pakistan became one of the few states to recognize the Taliban government as legitimate and enjoyed full diplomatic relations with its new ally. These relations continued despite changes in government in Pakistan, including a coup d'etat that brought General Pervez Musharraf to power, and even in spite of the Taliban's terrible record on human rights including massacres targeting ethnic and religious minorities, cultural genocide, and their well-known intense repression of women. Pakistan even remained a close ally of the Taliban, while it hosted a man named Osama bin Laden, who attacked another ally of Pakistan's, the United States, and he attacked the United States first in the press and then with bombs. Ultimately, bin Laden and al-Qaeda's planning and executing of the attacks of September 11th while being hosted by the Taliban in Afghanistan, led the U.S. government to invade and overthrow the Taliban government in late 2001. I was 18 when this invasion occurred, and as someone at the time who was very interested in world politics, I followed the developments very closely. At the time, the narrative surrounding the invasion was just how fast the Taliban government collapsed. And this was notable because... Unlike the invasion of Iraq that would follow, there wasn't a heavy American footprint as far as the invasion goes. And this presence consisted of special forces and CIA teams that were inserted into areas where the Taliban were super unpopular, namely the Tajik and Uzbek North, which were then supported by air power as well as gun power from the special forces teams. But Ahmed Shah Massoud, he wouldn't be there to see it all happen the man who had survived and repelled seven Soviet invasions of his Panjshir Valley, he would ultimately meet his end there. Two days before the 9-11 attacks, he was assassinated in a suicide bombing orchestrated by al-Qaeda. And I've read that al-Qaeda understood what was going to happen post-9-11, so they went and they took out the most capable military mind and military practitioner. I've also read that Osama bin Laden was told personally by Mullah Omar, that if he wanted to launch his planes operation, as the 9-11 attacks were called, from Afghanistan, he was first going to have to kill Ahmad Shah Massoud. But even without the presence of Massoud, the Taliban gave little fight, and Kabul was taken in just weeks. There was, however, fierce, very, very fierce resistance in the Tora Bora Mountains. As bin Laden told his men, they needed to hold the line, and he skedaddled out of the country into Pakistan. This was a process that was facilitated on the other side in Pakistan by both the ISI and the Pakistani government. It wasn't just bin Laden who skedaddled, but also Mullah Omar, along with the surviving leadership of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, who hadn't been either killed or captured. In the tribal areas of Pakistan, many of the foot soldiers who covered bin Laden's retreat were taken in by Pashtun tribes. As I said, I followed the events closely at the time. But I still couldn't understand the complexity of what was to follow until much, much later. Lately, I've had some folks ask me, where did this all go wrong in Afghanistan? And what could we have done to stop this from happening? And when I think of the many things that turned the Afghan population against the government, as well as our military forces, two things stick out in my mind. First, our forces would many times conduct raids at nighttime on homes in rural areas. In America, this is super common. Like you see it in movies, you see it if you watch Cops or Live PD or any of these types of shows that are on. When they have the SWAT teams move on somebody, they do it at like 5 or 6 in the morning. That happens in cities across this country every day. And it makes sense why you would do it at that time because more than likely, unless the guy's just been uh, smoking meth for a couple of days or smoking crack for a couple of days or sniffing powder for a couple of days, he's probably asleep. And if you go in there to get that person... When they wake up, they're going to be too disorientated to fight back or even, like, try to run away or anything like that. But these raids were viewed differently by the rural Pashtuns, who saw them as incredibly disrespectful, being that outsiders were coming into their homes unwelcomed. They were trampling and breaking stuff as they went along. And worst of all, in the eyes of many Pashtuns, they were laying eyes on the women of the family. And since these women were asleep, many times they were uncovered. And here in America, that last part, that probably means little to probably nothing for most of us. And that includes me, even as a Muslim. I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care if somebody sees a female member of my family, a loved one, uncovered. That doesn't mean anything to me. But how I think or how I feel about it, that has nothing to do with how they felt about it. And these raids alone, even when nobody was arrested or nobody was killed, just the raid, just the raid happening, sometimes that was enough to get the men of the family to either offer support to the Taliban or just join them. But perhaps as influential, if not more so, in terms of turning the population against the government, it was the return and the re empowering of many of the same warlords that the Taliban had chased off. And if it wasn't the exact same warlords, it was warlords that were similar. And with the warlords, returned the corruption drug trafficking, the Bachabazi, and the abuse of power that had pretty much typified their reigns in their respective areas in pre-Taliban times. These warlords, they were loyal to the central government of Hamid Karzai and their loyalty was more important to Karzai and George W. Bush. That was more important than anything else. Anything that wasn't them being centrally loyal, fully loyal, committed to fighting the Taliban, committed to pushing the political line of the central government, anything that wasn't that, it took a backseat. And it's in my opinion, at least, that we lost the people of Afghanistan from this point forward, just months after we arrived in the country. And the continued lack of any political programs or national campaigns to inspire unity or any connection between the politicians and the people outside of transactional bribery settings, as well as continued abuses by the warlords, the continued night raids, they made the withdrawal and the collapse of the government pretty much inevitable across the border in Pakistan, there were developments as well, namely that the Al-Qaeda foot soldiers were creating problems. These men weren't Pashtuns, and most weren't even from Afghanistan, with the group being made up mostly of Arabs, Uzbeks, and Chechens instead. And as is the case many times when a foreign army finds itself in a foreign land, they acted in a heavy-handed manner towards the local people, and in a similar manner as they would in Iraq post-invasion. Their very presence created an issue between the governments of Pervez Musharraf and George W. Bush, as Pakistan had recently begun receiving aid to fight terrorism, and Al Qaeda was active in that country. Perhaps Pakistan's continued support of the Taliban, which was beginning to regroup at that time, was discussed. But seeing as what happened next, it's clear which course of action seemed the most important. In an effort to dislodge the Al Qaeda foot soldiers from the tribal areas, The Pakistani army entered them for the first time in the country's history. As the fighters were hosted by local families, this created tensions between the Pakistani military and the local Pashtun tribesmen. These tensions would continue to simmer, but Mangal Bagh, the bus washer from Hyber agency I introduced to you earlier, he wanted no parts of the dispute. He was still loyal to the government, though in contrast to earlier in his life, he had become religiously observant. It started when he began going on evangelical missions with a group called the Tabliki Jamaat, which operates internationally, and in a very personal face-to-face, they'll go to your door, try to get you to have a greater connection with Islam. That's how they operate. But his religious observance, it intensified when he met a mufti, or Islamic legal scholar, named Munir Shakir in Khyber Agency. Munir was a cleric who espoused the Diobandi viewpoint. And for those of you unfamiliar with how the Islamic faith is structured, here's a brief rundown. Within Islam, there are two major sects, which would be the Sunni and Shia sects. Within each sect, there are also schools, and within these schools, there are interpretations as well. So this would mean that Mufti Munir is a Sunni of the Hanafi jurisprudence, and he believes in the Diyobandi school of thought, which the Taliban profess as well. Munir wasn't involved in any disputes with the states either, but he did have a dispute with a peer, or an elder teacher, named Saifur Rahman, who was originally from Afghanistan and promoted the barrel interpretation of the Hanafi school. These two would come to have an intense rivalry, and both would create illegal radio stations with the sole purpose of just bashing the other person. It's also around this time that Munir created a group called Lashkar-e-Islam, in which Mangal would belong to a close circle of dedicated supporters. Following the occupation of the tribal lands, groups like Lashkar-e-Islam began to form as tribal society became less and less stable. After years of rhetoric and insults and tension and just animosity, Wynir's supporters ended up clashing with those of pure Cypher, eventually leaving 25 dead in the fighting. The Pakistani government intervened, and ultimately both clerics were expelled from Hyber agency. And the leadership of Lashkar-e-Islam passed to Mangal. In Afghanistan around this time, the Taliban had long regrouped and they were increasing the frequency of their attacks. As the government in Kabul, which in reality controlled little outside of Kabul without American military assistance, it grew fearful of the renewed pressure of the Taliban, but it had few options at hand to stop it. But back across the border in Pakistan, Tensions had grown into open warfare in the tribal areas. In 2007, multiple armed groups in the area joined together under the banner of the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, or the Pakistani Taliban. The area would see an explosion in violence, which would then spread out into other parts of the country in the form of horrific, very, very horrific terrorist attacks. These terrorist attacks, they struck Sufi shrines, Shia mosques, they hit Jinnah Airport in Karachi, there was an attack on a school that killed over 100 children and the TTP they even claimed responsibility for the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. However, as the TTP set the country alight, Mango Bagh and Lashkar-e-Islam, they had other motivations. They had no interest at that time in fighting with the state, but they were very interested in extorting the rich businessmen in this agency. After a kidnapping plot drew the ire of the Pakistani military, an operation was launched against Lashkar-e-Islam, one of what would become four operations against the group. The response each time from Bagh and Lashkar-e-Islam was pretty consistent, though. They would either drop their weapons and surrender, or more commonly, they'd flee across the border into Afghanistan. Once they got there, they would be hosted by local families, and they'd be allowed to fly their flag and even put down roots in the area. Lashkari islam they were joined in Afghanistan by the myriad of groups that made up the TTP, all with the cooperation and protection of the Afghan government and the NDS, or National Directorate of Security, the country's intelligence service, headed at the time by a Masood protege named Amrullah Saleh. So remember when I asked you, what would you do if you fought somebody and they came back with their little brother? That's pretty much what Afghanistan did. They were too weak to confront Pakistan, and they were too weak to even confront Pakistan's proxy, the Taliban. But what they could do is recruit elements of a group that's weak, just like them, and these elements of this weaker group could cause an incredible amount of chaos by killing as many people as possible. And if they killed enough people, they would proved that the government couldn't protect the population, and the state would collapse as people would flee to the entity who could protect them. Elements of the TTP would continue to receive support for years as they waged this war against the Pakistani state. And as stated previously, the level of violence was horrific, and it touched multiple segments of society. But in the late 2000s and early 2010s, teens the level of violence had risen so high that it almost destabilized the Pakistani state completely. And mind you, This is a nuclear-armed state of 225 million people. And the human catastrophe that would result from this state being destabilized would be on a scale that we haven't seen in decades, maybe since the Second World War. And the motivation behind this was to get the state to fall, get the population to come under the protection of the TTP. But for the Afghan intelligence service and for the Afghan state, the motivation for support of the Pakistani Taliban it wasn't ideologically based they didn't want to see they didn't want to see the sharia state that the TTP had envisioned and had in their mind they just simply wanted the group to act as a counterweight to Pakistan's support of the Taliban in Afghanistan but this wasn't just a case of tit for tat and the support for the TTP it remained pretty constant throughout the worst of the violence it even continued as the TTP began to splinter and fall apart with internal feuds consuming the group, with Mangal participating in such feuds himself. It even continued as some groups under the TTP umbrella formed a new group, which the government also supported. And this new group was called the Islamic State Khorasan province, the local affiliate of the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham, or ISIS, the same group that is suspected of carrying out the bombing at the Kabul airport just days ago. This very same group that just bombed us this group was an ally of the Afghan government, despite it being an enemy of the Afghan government's ally, the United States of America. But then again, such an arrangement worked for Pakistan as well. From the onset of ISKP's inception in 2015, the primary target was the Taliban, and at first, Lashkar-e-Islam allied with Khorasan province, before switching allegiance a short time later to the TTP. Mongol bag he would meet his end in January of 2021, killed by an IED blast. No one has claimed responsibility for the attack, but considering the weapon used, and with the Taliban on the ascent at the time, perhaps it was just a case of a loose end being tied up. It would be one of many loose ends the Taliban would tie up, before the ultimate loose end, Kabul, was tied up just weeks ago. The situation Afghanistan finds itself in mirrors the one that it found itself in following the Taliban's takeover of 1996. The Taliban have taken over most of the country after a lightning offensive backed by Pakistan, with a Masood, this time Ahmed Shah Massoud's son Ahmed, and Amrullah Saleh leading the resistance to the Taliban from the Panjshir Valley. Its history repeating itself in the most literal sense. And when people ask me, how did the government of Afghanistan lose the country? I tell them this, instead of attempting anything that would inspire loyalty in the population or anything to address the multitude of issues that the people of Afghanistan faced, the Afghan state instead did stuff like ally with the Pakistani Taliban and ISIS. All this time, money, and manpower, it really could have been used towards something that would make someone want to defend the country from the Taliban. But ultimately, it wasn't to be. Because of the policies and adventures like these. Because of policies and adventures like these. And trust me, this isn't the only one. Thank you guys very much for listening. If you're still listening at this point, thank you double. And I hope you guys like this episode. But next week, we're going to be discussing the drug kingpin, Freeway Ricky Ross, the rapper Rick Ross, and what happens when you sue someone for being you. This has been Brain Drain with Connor McCann and once again thank you for listening.